A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I want to talk about booze. Alcohol has played a huge role in my life and is responsible for some of its highs and a lot of its lows. I'm interested in what role it plays in other people's lives and how things like age, race, class, sex, religion, geography, profession, health conditions, family history, good old-fashioned trial and error affect what they drink and why they drink it. I'm not here to preach to anyone. I'm certainly in no position to do that. I'm just looking for a better understanding of alcohol's role in Britain in 2019. This is The Drink. Please listen responsibly. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Drink. Apologies if you can hear a noise in the background. That is my boiler banging, which is sadly, and probably expensively, not a euphemism. Okay, busy day tomorrow I've got, as far as this podcast is concerned. In the morning, I'm going for a cup of tea, or possibly coffee fingers crossed for tea, with our future, our choices, Femi, to talk about being a teetotaler and probably inevitably Brexit. In the afternoon, I'm going for a pint with comedian Tien and Duyeb. And in the evening, I'm going to be a guest on A Drunk Women Solving Crime, in which I have to be legless. Anyway, on to this week. This week, I spoke to sports journalist Nick Miller about all sorts of interesting things, which you will hear coming up now. We had a couple of pints at lunchtime and I didn't notice that my kit had stopped recording. So that we did have a brilliant conversation about Rock City in Nottingham, but that belongs to the ages now. Hello, I am here in a pub in Greenwich. What was this pub called? The Trafalgar Tavern. With sports journalist Nick Miller. Hello. Hello, thanks for joining me. No problem. We actually know each other. Yes. We have a friend in common and I think it's quite interesting because when I was talking to Sam Avery on this, I was saying that I've got friends who are comedians that because they're always driving. I've known them for 10 or 15 years and I've never seen them pissed. Right. You, on the other hand, I don't know that well, really, but actually almost every single minute that I've been with you, we've been drunk. Yes, I mean, that... I don't know whether that says something about our mutual friend. Yeah, maybe it does. She just drives us to drink. <laughs> this wasn't our first choice of pub, because the first choice of pub like seems to be living in the 1980s and doesn't open until 3 o'clock. Yeah, well, I've only just moved into the area. Admittedly, that was a basic area. <laughs> but it looked like a nice pub. It, it advertised on its website that it had board games. Yeah, yeah it does. I, I enjoy a pub that boasts about its board games. It has. It's one of those places that, that it has a, a, a nice sort of wood fire, which I think is partly for the ambiance partly to mask the overwhelming smell of piss that's going from <laughs> in the toilets. So, are you a pub-goer? Uh, yes. So, what in your mind makes a decent pub? I like pubs where nothing looks the same. Like, they, they, they haven't got all the tables from, from the same place. They've just kind of cobbled things together and everything looks a bit wonky and a little right. bit higgledy-biggledy. I like pubs that have an interesting selection of booze but aren't too wanky about it because... And this doesn't bode well for the next however long this podcast going to I find talking about booze, as in the the, the taste and, and the top notes... Oh, yeah, that's nonsense. I, I, I can't think of anything more tedious than that. So yeah. anywhere where it is full of people that take it all too seriously, I, I don't like. But if we were doing this a couple of months ago, my local was in Dulwich, another part of South London. And my local would have been the East Dulwich Tavern. We would have done this and there, which is my favourite pub. Um, because it, it's kind of it is like that. It has a, a few interesting, yeah. some interesting goes. Not too wanky. Nothing looks the same. What do you think about 
for being shown in pubs. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I try to avoid pubs when there's sport going on first. Primarily because if there's a game that I really want to watch, I'll watch it at home. Sport, unfortunately, does tend to bring out wankers. And when you combine the wankers with, with booze and other wankers, then it becomes a an un- fairly unpleasant atmosphere. And it's just... Like, we tried, to, we tried to go to that very pub on Saturday, forgot there was a football game on, which doesn't really speak very well to my career as a sports journalist, that I forgot there was a, ma- <laughs> was a massive game on. But it was just... it was you know, People falling out of the windows, it was just impossible to get in, so that's a pain in the arse. But most of these football in particular, you have to, you have to pay a subscription... And the subscription for Sky Sports is unbelievably expensive. So, you know, I completely understand why people people do it. But uh... I don't object to it at all for those reasons, and because you know it's good for people to get together in places. But I find that when it's on, even though I don't give a shit about it, I end up watching it. Yeah. And people will be talking to me, and I'll just be looking at some cricket match that's going on in the corner, and I don't even know who's playing, and I'm just watching it. So I sometimes think it's it kills conversation. But yeah. you're right about the wankers. The only time I've ever been beaten up was when I was working in a pub, an estate pub, you know, right. one of those new builds in the 80s yeah. that, with the mega screen, like that thing that rolls down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. England lost. In the World Cup, so I would say maybe it wasn't the World Cup. No, it was European. They got quite far. Was this well, in the nineties? So I'd say it was ninety-six. Yeah. yeah, Euro ninety-six. The night they lost. So we lost to Germany in that. That's right. The, the guy was called Kunt, wasn't he? Kunz. Yes, yeah, Stefan Kunz. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. seriously, the whole place kicked off, and I actually ended up me and the landlady who was so I would have been about twenty at the time. The landlady would have been about 60 at the time. We both actually got punched. Jesus. Yeah. And the the, the, the man who really kicked all that off was uh, Gareth Southgate, because he missed the penalty. Our sainted, waistcoated hero. <laughs> yeah, definitely. The only time I ever feel... Unless I'm, going, I'm in a, like a properly like, rough pub. Yeah. The only time I ever feel kind of intimidated or anything like that in a pub is either... Either when there's a dress code, and that's a different time yeah. of intimidation, or when there's football on. I like a pub, personally. There's got games that you can play in the pub. Pole, and I like right. a bit of... Uh, I used to love bar billiards. Hardly any pubs have bar billiards anymore. I don't know why that's happened. Yeah. And a dartboard, except I can't. I'm not very good at uh, maths. I can only do maths that gets bigger. I'm not very good at maths that gets smaller. <laughs> I'm okay at adding up a multiplication, but take it away, it confuses me. Right, so you can do reverse darts? Yeah, I don't know my left and my right either, and I'm like 45. So, you are drinking red wine, I'm drinking a pint because I can't do red wine. Is that your usual? Do you have a usual? It is my usual, yes. I used to, partly a a, um, hangover from when I was younger, when I didn't like wine, but I thought it looked good, it looked thought it looked quite sophisticated. When I was sort of a student, or and, and even after that, my idea of ultimate sophistication was someone who had wine in, who didn't, <laughs> who didn't have to just kind of go to the corner shop and buy it, spend five pound on a, yeah. you know, some scabby bottle. That they actually, oh, oh yes, we've got we've got some bottles in. Yeah, we have a rack, as well as having developed the taste for it quite in a, a very poncy way. Quite like the. But that said, you don't do, it's full of fruity notes and... Absolutely not, no, I can't stand any of that shit. Whenever I'm in a restaurant or a pub with my girlfriend, I look like a complete child because I always just give her the list and say, I don't know what any of this means, you order something. So does that mean you like everything? Well, no, but I don't learn. So if if I drink something that I think, oh no, that's not for me, it just goes out of my head, so... I don't know what I'm ordering. It turns out to be nice, or it turns out to, I, I like it. I still won't remember it. The other day I did buy some red wine because I was going to someone's house. And I bought it because I like the label. Yeah. It had a, It was called 19 Crimes. It had a convict on the front oh, of it, like brilliant. an Australian yeah. convict. And I thought, oh, I like that, that'll do me. Yeah. Plus, I think sometimes you you buy, in that sense, you buy for price. You're like, who's going to drink this? If I'm going to someone's house for dinner... I will spend more on wine than mm. I would spend on if I was drinking at home. Yeah. Do you do white wine? No. Because you don't like it or because it comes with that kind of girly vibe? No, it's because I don't like it, because it's too, it's a bit too sweet for me. Right. 
and also it has white wine and red wine does different things to people my girlfriend will drink can drink most people on the table when it comes to red wine but white wine it sends her really morose it's very it's really strange I don't know why that is but it just seems to have completely different effects on people I did used to love wine I used to drink loads of it in my 20s I drank loads and loads of wine so the, the, the hangovers came became too yeah, much yeah the hangovers then... were just first thing that started to disagree well actually not, not, not true the first thing that disagreed with me was cider when I was like 16 mm. but I'd get a hangover if I drank beer but it would be a hangover that I would be able to get up and go to work and just every so often put my head on the desk and think that I wanted to die whereas wine hangovers are just whether well, an existential thing or yeah, well partly that and partly uh, uh, being at work and everyone going where is she and it's right. just I am in the toilet being sick and there's only so much of that that you can get away with at you, work you, if, if you get a little bit of the colour of the wine and you're sick you start panicking oh god I did, why have I got purple puke <laughs> also red wine does that horrible thing to you where it does your teeth yeah. and it does your lips and that is gross yeah well, I have to work quite a lot of, at the weekends, and there have been a number of occasions when I have gone into to an office or gone somewhere where I have to work, and about an hour after I've got there, I realise that I have still got red wine around, <laughs> around my mouth, nice. um, which doesn't create the most professional uh, appearance. So, a little bird told me oh, that God. you didn't used to drink. Is that right? It's, it's not entirely true. I, I didn't used to... I, I drink a hell of a lot more, more now when I'm 35 than I did when I was uh, at university. Which is unusual. Which is weird. Yeah. I, I agree. I used to be quite quite sort of poncy about it. and not I, Like, for example, when me and my, my mate went to our first music festival, Reading in 2000, I think it was, we were quite pious about the fact that we weren't going to drink when we were there because what's the point of going to a music festival if you're so drunk, <laughs> you, so drunk you can't remember anything? <laughs> and subsequently, of course, I have come to not hopefully not be such a, an insufferable punt and realise that it's not it's all, it's part of the thing. I think I've been um, I, I'd say this quite a lot about my kind of general personality, but I think I've been in my mid early thirties since I was about seventeen. So, so like for example, at university we would go out to go to the pub near near our student house. We'd be in there till about eleven. Then everyone else would go, brilliant, right? Let's go on to you know the sticky floored nightclub in yeah. town. And I'd just go, oh no, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna go home. I'm just gonna go home. Um, and when you went home, did you go to bed, or did you do more drinking at home? Depends who was there. If there were right. other, if there were people around, I never used to be one for drinking on my own. Which I do a little bit more now, but yeah, I wouldn't kind of go home and continue the evening with a, a nice port or something. It was kind of self-defeating because then, when on the occasions that I did go out with the rest of them, it was a it was a novelty and they saw it as a challenge to get me as pissed as possible. The worst example of it was when my if if anyone, if you remember aftershock, I don't know if they still yeah they, I do yeah it usually came in red or blue and my flatmates back then would give me purple so they'd buy two shots and mix them together and um, pour them down my throat which led to um, some hideous hideous hangovers it's funny that thing I can remember my my brother you've met my brother Mm. so he's 10 years younger than me so his 21st birthday he goes out on the lash with some friends so I go and go down and have a couple of pints with him and he is drinking just his mates buying pints for him and then putting stuff in it yeah yeah and then suddenly I have to sort it out because I'm his older sister and take him home and I just can't see women just don't do that women don't spike their friends no seriously it took me an hour and a half to get him home and that should have been a 10 minute walk yeah and at one point he was just sitting on a wall waving at people <laughs> he's that's not, nice he's not a stressful drug no he's a I want to see what's in that garden you're like yeah. no you just keep putting one foot in front of each other is that a uh, I've met him a couple of times yeah. but I don't really know him is that like an enhancement of his general personality or is yes that, right? yeah I would okay. say yeah there used to be some things like when I was I was younger like snake bite and black and things that 
I think pubs stopped selling that sort of stuff after a while. I mean, I pubs, so. you did yeah. used to be able to mix drinks and actually the pub would endorse this. Now you have to buy it and, like, pour it in yourself. Like, like an officially endorsed dirty yeah. pint. Yeah. So when did you start looking at drink as being an enhancement to an evening? I think it was probably where after I left university, got a bit older and was sort of, sort of less of a, like a peer pressure thing. Like less of a competition. Less of a competition, yeah. Because yeah. if you go out, you know, you go out uh, when you're a, a student, you go out to get drunk rather than you go out mm. and there's also booze there, which will, you know, hopefully enhance the evening. I think there is a difference there and I definitely prefer the, the latter. I mean, I'm actually with you on the festival front mm. because the vast majority of times that I went to festivals, I didn't actually drink that much. Partly because... Well, actually, mostly because as a woman at a festival, it's a pain in the balls to be pissed because you could, the, yeah. the queue for the toilets are always so huge. And you're like, if I go now, I'm actually, I could miss a, a bad. I yeah, could miss yeah. like a, a whole set. And also, when I was 19, you lost your friends. You lost your friends. That was it. You yeah, could you be were like, fucked. Yeah, till, till you all went back to the tent that evening. That last few festivals I've been to, I've had a pass because we've been on at the festivals. Yeah. The standard issue. In fact, we get to go to a toilet backstage. So suddenly I was like, with that removed, I was like, yeah, I can start <laughs> drinking. But there is still waking up in a hot tent at six o'clock in the morning thinking this is the worst thing that's ever happened. The to absolute me. worst hangover yeah. is the, the morning of a hot festival. I've never been to a, a festival abroad where you have to camp because that... That would. Didn't you go to Primavera? Yeah, but you don't camp there. Oh right. You you you. Um, it's well, a, one doesn't, or there is literally no camp. There is literally no camp. Oh okay. It's a it's on a kind of like an urban park thing on the edge of the city centre. It's all very picturesque, but then you everyone goes goes and stays in their Airbnb or whatever in town. So that's a little bit more civilised. Other other festivals where you have to camp out and it's you know forty degrees when you wake yeah. up at seven in the morning. <laughs> oh know. god. It's not fun. It's not. No. It really isn't. I'm doing one of these with Angela Barnes in a bit. Oh, yeah. Angela Barnes and I. And I don't know, you might have been there. And Mickey Noonan and my brother attempted to drink a bar dry at the end of Latitude. And we were so drunk. And the next morning, I it was horrendous. Mm. It was absolutely horrendous trying to get tents down and just, oh, oh, it was the worst. It was the worst thing. And I think we'd only been in bed like 15 minutes or something. Yeah. And to make matters worse, just by coincidence, Angela had actually camped next to us. Yeah. Oh, that's a reminder of how drunk I was. Literally, <laughs> I'm packing her tent next to us now, which is terrible. But when I was younger, I did used to take lots of recreational drugs at festivals. They don't make you piss. So tell me about, when was the first time you were drunk? First time I was drunk, I was about... Uh, probably about 14 I've got an older cousin who when I was when I was younger I thought was the coolest guy in the world and he gave me do you remember two dogs yes it's like a precursor to hooch yeah and he <laughs> it sounds particularly stupid but one of the things I thought was cool about him was that he had a macro card you know, Mac, is, is, is it's like a wholesalers. Oh, really? Uh, so, he, so he would. Oh, I don't take much, does it? I know, I know. <laughs> he very easily impressed a thirteen-year-old, fourteen-year-old. But he would go and find all these weird things that the, you you yeah. couldn't get in a, in Morrison's or whatever. One of them was he had a massive crate of this two dogs, basically boozy lemonade. So was, that, was, a, was that Australian? I can't remember. I'm sure possibly, I can't remember might, a thing no, about it being yeah. something to do with it was supposed to be short for two dogs fucking. I think. <laughs> Only being Australian who told me that. That's kind of gross way to get drunk. Yeah, obviously being 14 and not really had much booze before, didn't take much, you know, a couple of bottles. How did your parents react to that? I think my dad thought it was quite funny. don't think my mum was very impressed. Although I can't, was it when they were there? I can't. I, I can't remember that bit. My parents were always reasonably good about... Or, I say they were reasonably good, they were always very good at pretending they hadn't noticed yeah. that, that I was pissed when I, when I come in. Have you in. got older siblings? No, I've got a younger sister. Right. Because normally it's kind of toughest for the first child right. because they are, like, the ground-breaking child. My younger brother, his life was quite easy because there wasn't much that my sister and I hadn't done that my yeah. parents weren't already, oh, we've been here before, this is how you deal with that, rather yeah. than freaking out and stuff. Well, I think I was relatively... I wasn't a... Um, 
wasn't a kind of rebellious kid, so they kind of they sort of broadly knew what I was, where I was, and where what I was doing. Yeah. And as long as they roughly knew that, then they were kind of fine with everything. You know. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town outside Nottingham. It's called Bingham. It's now it's one of these kind of sprawls of just housing estates yeah. that is gradually expanding. It's the kind of place where everyone was very excited when uh, they put a little in there uh, a couple of years ago. It's one, of, it's one of those places, basically in the middle of nowhere, but it's a fairly big town that is too big to be a nice little country village, yeah. but too small to have to be interesting in any possible respect. But it does have... How many pubs has it got now? When I was growing up there, it had six or seven pubs, um, which were really the only places where people kind of congregated. A couple of them were closed, one of them is now Weatherspoons. See, that's the same as, I mean, Newport Bagnall, where I grew up. I mean, there's about half the number of pubs there was when I grew up, and yet the town is like twice the size mm. as when I grew up. Yeah. But actually, in the 1900s, because I am boring, I, <laughs> I read a book about local history, cause, and there was something like 100 pubs or something in Newport Pagnell at like the turn of the 20th century. Nice. And some of them were just like literally people selling bows out of their front room, yeah. basically. Um, I don't know, but I mean, people say it was a smoking ban that did for pubs, but I don't know, I just think that people have different things that they can spend their time yeah and it's it's easier to get decent booze to just have in your house yeah never smoked so I can't really tell you that but I don't think do you smoke I smoke yeah I mean I think the smoking ban was amazing to be honest the smoking ban made my dad stop smoking right and my dad stopping smoking there's absolutely certainly extended his life by good I would say couple of years and I didn't think he could give up smoking he had that kind of men of that age affront to him he was like I am not standing in the street like yeah. I'm not fucking welcome in your pub <laughs> he had two options then he stopped going to the pub yeah. or he stopped smoking and he chose to stop smoking Yeah. So, but and I, he can't be the only person no. that was like that well, it, yeah initially I thought that I, I've, never, I've never smoked but initially I thought it was a pain in the ass because you'd be in the pub with a bunch of people and yeah. they'd, they'd be pissing off outside every half yeah. an hour for a cigarette which would be annoying but that and that was initially now it seems you know that has changed with people either you know yeah. people either vaping or just yeah. not bothering do you know what though what I find I find the interesting is when I first started working you could still smoke in your office mm. I could smoke in my house um, um, my parents house because my dad always smoked and he wouldn't go in the garden just because there were babies in the house that's no reason to go in the garden and then, and then, obviously, the smoking ban had happened. And I always wonder now how... Like, there are times when I want to say something to someone and I just say, I'm going out for a cigarette if you want to come with me. Right? I don't know how I had private conversations before. Like, <laughs> when I could smoke inside, I must have had to make up elaborate things yeah. just so I could go outside and go, oh, boss is a massive dick, or how pissed is Sharon? I've noticed the guttering outside the front door is <laughs> a little bit... But I need a second opinion. Would you mind just... 1 size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'd like to know why some sports are really boozy and some sports aren't really boozy. Okay. So, sports like football so, and rugby. I mean, football and rugby. But I've also been to a cricket match uh, in my life and everyone was legless. Yep, cricket's quite boozy. 
golf is quite boozy in a sort of different way. In a corporate way. In a kind of corporate, uh, you know, no women in here yeah. kind, of, kind of way. I think it's a social, it's more mainly a social thing. And I don't know exactly why this is, but things like swimming. People don't kind of gather together to watch swimming. Athletics sort of? No, it's a similar thing. And I think it is partly a popularity thing because more people will gather around to watch football. So that, that will apply to people watching it, but people playing it, I'm not entirely sure why some sports aren't kind of... Maybe it's a team sports thing. You don't, Yeah. Tennis isn't really, doesn't really have a kind of boozy culture other than, you know, pims at Wimbledon or whatever. Yeah. So I think when, when you either are part of a team or you support a team, and you can you can kind of gather around that and get sort of fired up about it or whatever. I think there's been some effort to try and make football in particular less aggro in fandom yes. terms. I mean, so yeah. less violence, less more family friendly. Yeah. So it seems to me that reducing the amount of pissed up people attending football matches has got to help is that is that something you go to football a lot of football matches yes and football hooliganism is down uh, it is it is down uh, it's so it's down from how, what it was like you know 30 35 years ago does just, just depend on where you go right you you average you, you're unlikely to get in, see any trouble at an average football game in England but if it's for example it's a local a local derby if it's a game of big importance then well first of all the police will often move a local derby to a lunchtime kickoff, so people haven't got the chance to get tank, before, tanked right, up yeah. beforehand so the, the odd thing about violence in football is it, it is partly linked to alcohol but historically is not all not specifically linked to alcohol because people would they would have these kind of organised yeah. firms of, um, of lads who would just kind of arrange to have a fight somewhere uh, or, or would like it's skill yeah yeah it really was the football would all, would kind of be a side thing they right. would go somewhere as part of this group and they would there was a, there used to be a whole thing about like like a territorial thing about taking the other sides city centre or pubs or terraces which is how a lot of problems got so uh, do you know about the, the high school uh, yes I know about that yeah yeah so that was in part thanks to because of a um, a kind of uh, one group of fans running towards another group of fans in a kind of territorial thing and a war collapsed and that's how kind of broadly speaking it's, it's, obviously it's much more complicated than yeah. that but that's kind of kind of how that happened but now most places certainly all places in the top two divisions in, in England are all seated so you can't you can't do that as easily now the laws around drinking at football grounds are really odd. You are allowed to drink booze. You're not allowed to take booze into the ground, but you're allowed to buy booze in the ground. You're not allowed to drink it within sight of the pitch. So, which was a... That is weird. Yeah. And it's, I mean, a, a, a pleasing side point of that is that you don't get people getting up and, you know, going to the bar yeah. after 20 minutes um, and bringing the drink back to their seat. But it was a... Um, it was part of the Taylor Report, which came in after the Hillsborough disaster in 1989. Um, and some, most places, they'll just if you try and take your pint into the stand, they'll just say, "No, mate, you can't, you can't do that. Don't need to take it back." Some places are sort of ludicrously specific about it. So there will be sort of areas of the the bit underneath the stands where all the bars are, where there are like marked off areas on the floor. Where you can technically you can see the pitch, and you're not right. allowed to drink while standing in that area because, technically speaking, you're breaking the law by having alcohol within sight of the of the pitch. As far as I know, that's the, the football is the only sport that does that. If, if you're a rugby game and obviously a cricket game, you're allowed to drink booze in your uh, like a you know like a grown up. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's always slightly, slightly tricky to work out which way around it is, whether it, 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 this football fans are treated like this because they behave badly or they behave badly because they're treated like children. Historically, a lot of people will argue it is, it is the latter, that 
a lot of the reason for trouble in the past was because police treated football fans in a kind of almost inhuman way and that still ha- that still happens it's just on a much lower scale as things have become more kind of gentrified and you know more family friendly yeah. and tickets have become much more expensive so you know back in the 80s you could get a ticket for a few quid it didn't really matter if you didn't see any football you were just there to you know you know have a fight or drink or just be with your mates or whatever now if you're paying 50 60 quid for a ticket you want to watch some football yeah that's certainly part of the reason why it's not there isn't quite as much trouble associated with it any uh, these days I suppose as well it creates a lads out together culture it's what we do on a Saturday afternoon for a lot of gangs of lads and I mean that in the nicest way not as in they're marauding gangs but you know friendship groups would be the the better way to say it I said I was on a train the other day and it was really busy and there were some really pissed up people who'd clearly been to some sort of sporting event. I think it was something to do with the rugby. Right. And they were absolute dicks. And there was like the entire train was being held hostage to the whims of this bunch of pissed up blokes. Everybody went away with a bad impression of what it's like to, to for yeah. that. Yeah, and if, that's, if, that, if you're not really into football or sport in general, that's the only kind of way or that's your only interaction with yeah. football fans and of course you're going to think they're kind of you know Neanderthal thugs yeah. I was at, at like I went to um, Manchester United against Liverpool a couple of weeks ago and I got I was on the tram from Manchester City Centre to the ground it's about sort of 15 minutes on the on the tram out there and there were a bunch of lads who was, I mean impressively in some ways because this was about noon who were absolutely leathered and were singing awful songs about Liverpool fans and Liverpool in general about Hillsborough um, yeah they were banging on the ceiling of the tram to the point where the ceiling kind of ca- caved in a little bit like the you know the, on some public transport they have like you have like a, a panel with the, the um, route map above the door yes. they were banging on that and that came off and they just kind of they tried to pass it down the, the carriage and it even as someone who you know I've been going to football for near enough 30 years and it was still quite intimidating for me I'm used to all that kind of thing Yeah. but I just kind of pulled my hood up a bit and put my yeah. headphones on and sort of hungered down in the corner so you know Christ knows what it's like for someone who's not used to that it depends how good humour it is it's not intrinsically being drunk that's mm. the problem is it I mean like I said the only time I've ever been to a cricket match was in Australia I went to an England-Australia game and I yeah. was in the Australian end because I was with Australian people uh, it was at the Adelaide o- Oval, which is a lovely, like, old, like... They've ruined it now, but yeah. Oh, yeah. have they? Yeah, they built three big, massive new stands. It's not as oh, good. Oh, yeah. and there was a guy who used to... Literally an old man who used to come and change the score on it. It was on Australia Day. It was which is January, which is the yeah. height of their summer. It's a massive sun trap. It's crazy hot. Everyone was absolutely legless. The Barmy Army are making a noise up the far end. But football, and it always feels different. It always feels threatening. It always feels like a bad kind of drunk. And whereas rugby feels like a shit in a pint glass kind of drunk. Yeah, which uh, maybe it's because I'm more used to the football thing, but I find that more insufferable than than yeah, um, probably than the football thing. You kind of it's a uh, well. That's not. Uh, I'll go into my prejudice against rugby because uh, that's not really what this podcast is about. No. But it certainly is a kind of. There's a slightly different culture in when it comes to booze when you're playing. I think football was set apart from this as well. In, or maybe it was true, kind of old school football. But certainly in rugby and to a slightly lesser extent in cricket, if you're playing the game, more or less anything went on the pitch. You know whether it was verbal abuse or someone you know getting punched in the face or whatever. As long as you had shook hands afterwards and had a pint in the bar, then everything was okay. Yeah. It was it was like a kind of we're going to deal with this like a pair of bloody blokes. <laughs> and I always just found that just very odd that you would be so kind of blinded by what they call white line fever whenever you yeah. when you go onto the pitch, you become a completely different person. That. Everything was just forgiven if you, you know, you shook hands and bought each other a pint in the bar yeah. afterwards, which isn't really as true in football. I don't think, not having played a huge amount of uh, proper, yeah. proper football anyway. With 
sports like football and rugby, once you're in a team, like a, like a university team, there was a huge kind of culture around drinking and being quite unpleasant with it. That is interesting because it seems to me that if you're going to be a sports person, you know, you shouldn't be drinking. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't be, but it just seems logical that you wouldn't. Whatever reasons, it's calories you don't need, it's hangover when you've got to get up at whatever time. But actually, I resent saying the words, or I don't like saying the words, some of our country's most famous alcoholics. But in truth, some of our country's most famous alcoholics are footballers. Yeah. George Bess, Paul Gascoigne, yeah. Tony Adams. Tony Adams. Well, I think broadly speaking, a lot a lot of footballers these days are either teetotal or they bear, or barely drink, and it's because you are greatly rewarded for being more professional yeah. about things. But even like in the, the sort of the heyday of boo, boozy sports people in the seventies and eighties, they would always say you'd never drink like if you had a game on the Saturday, you'd never drink after Tuesday. Because of that, if you go out after a game on Saturday, it's a kind of cutting loose thing. Rather than you or I would have a, like a glass of wine with dinner or yeah. whatever on a Thursday night, they couldn't do that. So they got to kind of get it all, get yeah, it all in on point. the Saturday night. So when that happens, you get like a kind of you know a, a, a giddy sort of feral, yeah. feral mentality where you just kind of go, right, I've got to get my drinking for the weekend tonight. I think it's interesting as well because, you know, with a lot of people who decide to clean their act up, it's, you know, it's about hitting rock bottom, isn't it? And you can hit rock bottom in, like, a number of ways. But, you know, when you're hard up, you one of the first rock bottoms you hit is money. Yeah. And if you're living in a world where either everyone wants to buy you a drink so you're not spending any of it which is, I think, the thing with, like, say, George Best, for yeah, example. Absolutely. Yeah. But now, in the culture where you've just got all the money you freaking need, how do you how do you get to that point? Who's going to tell you you're drinking too much? With, with all that kind of money becomes a, becomes a kind of hyper fame. Yeah. So if, if like, a, a, an alcoholic footballer now, if their version of rock bottom is a kind of public shaming thing. Yes. Um, so you, it's... Because because they're kind of much smarter about it these days, and they have these kind of you know armies of PR people who I'm sure will, if there is a a story about them being disgracefully drunk somewhere, that it will be kind that's of. That's not going to help, is it? No, no, no. That's As true. in, if they've got a problem, it's not going to help. No, no. I, I mean, that's what that's what happened to Anne or Dick, whichever one it was. Yeah. Um, Still don't know which one. It yeah. Is, yeah. Nobody knows. No. There have been a number of stories, for example, about Wayne Rooney being kind of pissed in various yeah. public places. There's a story about him being drunk and disorderly on a flight recently, and there was one where he was supposedly on England... Well, he was on England duty, and um, he got pissed up and crashed the wedding um, that was in the, in the hotel. I think it was in the hotel that they were staying in or something like that. So these stories do kind of... Do, do still yeah. come out and there is a still an element of, of public shaming to it. Yeah. It's nice to talk to another journalist because I was trying to talk to a wide variety of people doing this podcast. Turns yeah. out I only know comedians and journalists. <laughs> That's like 75% of people I know. I'm guessing from what I know about sports journalism it's probably less boozy because you actually go and watch a match and then you actually have to come back and write it almost immediately and that doesn't always happen in journalism sometimes you can sit on stuff for a couple of days before you need to turn it in yeah um, so is it less boozy? Uh, it's, it's tricky because I don't I don't know what I'm comparing it with but right. it's not so, so for example at a, if you go to a game there will you know, often be a lot of people you know there and you go for a, go for a pint afterwards or something. Right. Like, oh, so you, you don't necessarily need to file copy straight away. Yeah, you do, but you but everyone is more or less in the same boat. So right. You, so if, if you're doing a match report, you will, uh, you know, you'll file that as soon as the game finishes, and then maybe you'll have something else like a the manager or players will give press conferences. You'll write. You maybe write something else uh, from that, but. You know, journalists are probably out in the ground until about an hour and a half, depending on the game, after it's finished. Right. 
people will obviously drift away and do go away at different times, but they, they there will usually be someone around who you could go for. Yeah, and I, I I kind of I don't do that very often because it's kind of because it I'm aware that I have quite an antisocial job anyway for for you know for other people. For other people, do you mean like for your partner? Yeah, right. If you go to like a game in Manchester and it's a five got kickoff. You're done there, uh, you know, at nine o'clock or whatever. You want to get home. You, you know, you get get back to London. It takes a while, so you don't necessarily want to kind of yeah. find some pub near the station to have a, to have a drink in. So yeah, go back back to the to the question you asked. Um, I think it, it is. It's not as I, well. I, it's not as boozy now as it was when I when now I'm freelance as it was when I had. A staff job because it was much it was much easier to have a kind of obviously you know you're in an office it's just like oh you know finishing time let's go to, let's go to the pub or let's go to the pub at lunchtime you know but I think that's probably true of, of any kind of office job slash someone who's self-employed my Christmas party was sorry I've just put my sad face on uh, freelancing you, if you work for a number of organisations you have my, you have a number of Christmas parties but you don't you know you, you, it's interesting I'm not really sure whether it's any less boozy than than wider journalism. I certainly think that journalism now is less boozy than it would have been in the past. Oh, I, yeah, I agree with that completely. Because I used to work with people who were pissed. Yeah. Who were literally pissed in the office. Yeah. I worked with a couple of people who were clearly alcoholics and used to disappear at periods during the day and come back and I think you've just gone and had a drink of something somewhere I don't even know uh, but I've also had a couple of editors who were big big lunchtime two three pints like at lunchtime and come back and be bolshy or make really bad decisions that you couldn't talk them out of just no way and you'd be like I can't believe this is I can't believe I'm working with you well there was a and, and this is this is not supposed to be a funny story because this was a, obviously a, a person who had a serious problem but someone who I, I, I never actually worked with them but they worked for the same place I did before my time was t- t- the lengths he would go to to stop to hide his boozing during the day is he would go out at lunchtime to a cafe he would buy a plain jacket potato and pour vodka into it Oh my god, that sounds awful. Yeah, uh, awful in in in, in many in, many in, ways. In many yeah. ways, but not yeah. least gastronomically. Yeah. <laughs> and he, that's that's a that's just a soggy potato. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think and I think there was a uh, I don't know whether this is this probably is true of of, of journalism in general, but certainly of sports journalism. I think there's a, the, in the old days there was a kind of sort of a romantic idea of a, the grand old sports writer with a with a glass of whiskey and maybe a cigar yeah. tapping out their latest opus on whatever has happened so there's a guy that um, died just recently called Hugh McIlvenny who was the, in his kind of pomp in the 60s and 70s listening to a lot of the stories that his contemporaries told when he when he died it was about 50% what a genius writer he was and 50% what a legendary boozer he was I think there is that kind of and it sort of ties into sort of old American writers like Norman Mailer and people like that yeah. who would write about boxing and but there will be lots of boozy stories associated with that so which I don't think is really true to the same well certainly not true to the same extent anymore personally I don't think any sport has the romance and the literary cachet that boxing has yeah and I think part of that is to do with like you say about that sort of drinking I don't think that another sport has that kind of feel I mean you probably feel differently about that because you do know more about sport than I do (laughs) yeah so I've I have kind of thought about exactly why there is sort of an intellectual kind of there's smart guy sports like uh, in, uh, in America that your smart guy sports are boxing and baseball Baseball, because I think because you can, there is a sort of slow pace to it, which yeah. allows. It's more, really boozy as well, baseball, isn't it? It's I quite think boozy. the crowd is yeah, yeah, boozy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, are, yeah, there is a sort of slow pace to it, which allows a sort of 
the kind of languid pretentiousness of some yeah. writers to just kind of go off on one about the the smell of the smell of the smoke in the crowd yeah. and the green of the, the field or whatever. Boxing, I've never been quite sure why that that is exactly the case, and I don't know whether it is it, which way around it is. Whether it's because people like Norman Mailer wrote, wrote, wrote about it, um, so there is. Uh, and Ernest Hemingway as well there is a kind of Simon yeah, yeah there is a sort of intellectualism attached to it from that perspective yeah. or whether it was the other way around whether I don't know whether it was a, it was a, a, a kind of way of um, I don't know almost sort of justifying an interest in what is basically a two people kick, smacking the shit smacking out the of, shit out of each, each other. other yeah I don't know for me, it came from my dad. My dad was obsessed by it. My dad woke me up out of bed when I was about nine and took me round to a friend of his house and I was in my pyjamas. So I can remember sitting in a house with loads of men and we were at his friend's house because he had Sky. And we watched... It was, I want to say it was Tyson, but I don't know if it's that early. It might have been something... It might have been Sugar Ray Leonard right. or Marvin Hagler, someone that he was obsessed by. Right? Yeah. It, it, there must have been something more to it than just your dad liked it. What, 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 uh, was, it that... what was it that I liked about? I mean, I think it's because it has this... It's, it is a working-class sport, isn't it? So I think it comes from being working-class. But, but also, I think, I mean, it's going to come from Hemingway as well, from all of those people that I was yeah, and there's I was a, interested in. A, there's a sort of... Um, the a sort of combination of intellectualism in, within the sport and, and just kind of primal violence because you, yeah. you you can't just be good at smacking people around the head you have to be smart technically as well and you have to yeah. be smart tactically and you have to you know know when to use your jab and you have to know you have to be able to spot where the punch is coming from and all that kind of thing so maybe that's, that's yeah I think see we've gone way off topic here yeah. but I very rarely talk about sport I think it's why the two other sports that I actually really like and people are always really surprised by are cricket and American football and it's right. because they both basically are like kind of similar to chess yeah. it's all about what move you pull at what time whereas football is more of a kind of there are elements of that but it's more it's not random but it's yeah. more chaotic yeah so can I ask you do you think that you could ever give up boots or can you see a point in your life where you might not drink yeah I think so I I, I I drink because I like it, not because I need to, and because yeah. and uh, I think I would miss the. I think I would miss the comfort of it rather than like the taste of a nice wine or a good, yeah. or a good whiskey or, or something like that. Um, I th- certainly think I'm past the age where it would. I I feel sort of socially awkward. I would feel socially thirty five. Right. Um, yeah, where I'd feel socially awkward coming to a pub and just saying I'm just gonna have a coke. Yeah. Uh, so in that respect, I don't think I'd, I'd miss it. I don't think I would choose to unless there was a good reason. I don't think I would just kind of go, oh, I'm just going to give up booze and just, just to prove a point or just because I can or whatever. So it's probably when hangovers it. really start to kill you. Yeah, but and this is another reason so, why... Because you are actually around the point that hangovers really started to kill me. Yeah, well, the, 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 they've, they've certainly got worse, but the, the, this is one of the reasons why I like red wine is because... That, Oddly, I can deal with the hangovers quite well. It's beer that, like, two pints of beer, and I. What, is, what sort of hangovers does beer give you? A headache which feels like. Yeah, it's headache with me with beer. It's a, it's a headache yeah. which feels like, and not just a normal headache, a fair headache that feels like my head's in a vice. Yeah. And that that becomes just kind of debilitating. Yeah. Um. So that's. So it's, but but I can happily drink a bottle of red wine and not really feel it the next morning. Yeah. Maybe that work. Maybe I've, that's in the post for me. Maybe that's. Yeah. Scary. Maybe. I tell, tell you what. Would, would uh, as I said, if unless there was a good reason, like a good health reason, or, or I was completely skint or something, I wouldn't. Partly because I was uh, I was a designated driver for uh, for a kind of uh, a party or whatever you call it a couple of weeks ago. And it turns out, you know what's really boring when you're sober? Other people. Drunk people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that would be a good reason not yeah. to not to give up booze. Um, because they just, turns out they just kind of tend to repeat themselves. And, you know, uh, oh, it's terrible. Had a lovely time. But uh, after a certain point, it got a bit trying. Yeah. I mean, that seems like I've had that feedback a lot, you know. And, and to be honest, I've never really... 
done it for any period of time, but as one of the few drivers in my in my family, right? It's quite often me that has to be around when everyone else is is drinking. And the odd thing is, sometimes you'll get someone who will try and you know come over to your side a bit and be supportive. Right. And be like, well, this doesn't seem very fair, does it? Because everyone's really drunk and you're really sober, and so I will stay moderately sober. But people never moderate it. Like they just like, oh, great, you're driving, and I've been guilty of this myself. This thing a couple of weeks ago, people just uh, mocked me mercilessly for not for not being able to drink. It was um, cruel, but quite nice in this, uh... <laughs> at the same time. I don't at the moment don't see any reason to to give up, but I think I could. So what is your tip for getting over a hangover? Bacon sandwich, four-fat Coke, a long lie down. That's pretty much... Yeah. That, it's, it's not a complicated, uh, yeah, complicated like, yeah. system, but, um, yeah. Nick, where can people find you if they want to find you? Uh, I work mainly for ESPN and The Guardian. I'm on Twitter, NickMiller79. I probably don't talk about booze quite as much. <laughs> deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.